moral panic, false memory syndrome, multiple personality, and satanic ritual abuse. Okay, good afternoon everybody. Thank you for joining us for the seminar this afternoon. Uh, just a little apology, I have to leave um, just before quarter to two, about quarter to two, so my colleague Anton Ellis will take over for the Q&A section. I'd like to introduce to our speaker today, who's a forensic psychiatrist, Robert Kaplan, who's a clinical associate professor at the Graduate School of Medicine at the University of Wollongong in Australia. He has written a num uh, uh, on a number of, of, of issues, murder, crime, genocide, history, medicine and psychiatry. He has often appeared on radio as a public speaker and is a regular contributor to magazines and newspapers. His publications include the books Medical Murder, Disturbing Tales of Doctors Who Kill, The Exceptional Brain and How It Changed the World, and The Prophet of Psychiatry in Search of Reginald Ellery. Over the years, he has captivated our seminar series with the bizarre tales of the psychiatric world. His latest publication from July this year, Dark Tales of Illness, Medicine and Madness, is a journey through the world of illness, doctors and patients. It shows the extremes of human nature in the complex, dangerous relationships between patients and doctors, public responses to notorious medical quacks, murders, unscrupulous treatments and other crimes in the world of medicine and health. The book exposes mystic diagnoses, and doctor-patient frailty, discussing the minds of some of the world's most bizarre doctors, patients, and murderers. It will appeal to those with an interest in medicine, healthcare, psychology, and mental illness, uh, mental, mental illness-related crimes. Today's seminar is titled Memory, Medical History, and Moral Panics, Repressed Memory Syndrome, Multiple Personality Disorder, and Satanic Personality Disorder. Rob, if you'll speak for about 40 minutes, 45 mm -hmm. minutes, and then we'll open the floor up for questions. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the introduction, Chet, and, uh, and for the free publicity for the book. <laughs> uh, always Which appreciate it. Yes, yes. I have to start off by saying I had a completely different topic, but um, a couple of months ago, I uh, blundered into some papers written by Sandra on... Uh, Satanism in the Afrikaans community or and moral panic and as it happened I'd done s some work about what I call the original or not the first moral panic but one of the big ones in recent times and that was the so-called triad of false memory syndrome multiple personality disorder and the title is slightly wrong satanic ritual abuse and those three form this rather ominous triad. The basis, having looked at Sandra's articles, and I could see that we were on the same line together, because the, you might say the theoretical basis for what we're talking about comes from two people. The first one is the book, The Pursuit of the Millennium, by Norman Conn, C-O-H-N, first published in 1957, I think, and never been out of print since then. What the pursuit of the millennium was, about, go, takes you back to the Middle Ages and the medieval times, when in Europe the Catholic Church ruled supreme, but you got these millenarian movements starting out in people at times of great social unrest, poverty, turmoil, warfare, 
who fastened on a kind of pseudo-messianic figure and all sorts of things spun off from this like the children's crusade and a lot of bloodshed and murder so the point about this i mean one could spend hours discussing millennial pursuits as norman con puts it but the point about this is how people in times of disturbance when they've lost their bearings in the society they're in latch on to utopian ideas and it's worth noting that Norman Kahn has written probably the most insightful explanations as to how the German population latched on to the Nazis and Hitler. Now the second issue, your theoretical point, is from a South African and his name was Stanley Cohen and Stanley Cohen went over to the UK where he became a professor of sociology and also in the late 1950s, I think it was 1959, he wrote about and he coined the term moral panic. Now what he coined it about was something that's in today's world, which is so much more ghastly, was the battles between the mods and the rockers. And these were kind of teenage gangs who listened to this, they rode scooters. Now, do you find anybody on a scooter <coughs> ominous? Not really, but they caused panic. And they would go down on public holidays to British seaside towns and all hell break loose. And what, uh, what, what Stanley Cohen came up with is that moral panic is exaggerated fears in a community of uh, a threat to the social well-being fanned, uh, it's my word, but you can get see what I'm getting at, by the media. And this blows it up and gives exaggerated tales and it builds the flames higher and higher. And these two points, uh, Norman Kong and Stanley Cohen, really form the basis for what I was looking at all these years back. Now, what happens is this, the sequence. In 1962, the term battered baby arises from a social worker and suddenly the medical profession, psychologists, social workers started realising that child abuse was a very real problem in every society and it first came up with physical abuse and people were showing, you know, they were getting babies with every bone broken in their body and this was known as the battered baby syndrome. So slowly there was a, an awareness of child sexual abuse and what a terrible problem it was. The next step, and the initials for this for convenience was always CSA, was child sexual abuse. And this starts coming up in the 70s. Now it's worth going back to the turn of the century where Freud was first putting out his ideas. And Freud's first ideas was that hysterical women, the ones he'd analysed, were, had been molested by their fathers. Okay? That's fair enough. And then Freud turns 180 degrees. No, they weren't molested by their fathers. They fantasised this, and it was all in their heads. And this set the tone for many decades that doctors and psychiatrists would say, ah, you say you've been molested? 
in your head. You're a fantasy. Fantasizing, you're neurotic, you're hysteric, don't see the psychiatrist. Now that's part of it. Not everybody, of course, would have followed that path. So the recognition of child sexual abuse was terribly important. But then, like, uh, as Karl Popper says, uh, uh, the law of unintended consequences, it got picked up where else in America, particularly on the East Coast, where there were a lot of feminist collectives, Boston, New York, uh, New Hampshire, Cincinnati, this sort of thing. Now, they were seeing people who were saying, look, I'm unhappy, I'm miserable, my life is lousy, I've got an eating disorder, I'm depressed. And in these groups, they started having these group therapy, which were always run by non-trained uh, people, not psychologists, not social workers, not psychiatrists. And they came up with a new version. They rejigged Freud. The question that was asked of all these people is, you're now 21, you could be 35, you could be 48. How come you forgot about it from when you were 13, maybe 9, maybe 15? And they said, ah, Freud got it wrong. Terrible traumas like this were repressed in memory to cause complete amnesia. Now note the word complete amnesia. And you could only un unlock the amnesia through the kinds of therapy they did. And all hell broke loose. Because what you got were a stream of therapists, and of course this very soon exploded onto the whole public scene, the therapy scene around the world, who had a sort of a one one key fits every lock approach. No matter what you went to the therapist with, it was repressed memories of child sexual abuse. Now you started getting some what you might call epistemological problems if you looked at it carefully. Firstly, can one repress a memory so thoroughly that you have absolute complete amnesia? We're not talking about somebody who has a very unpleasant memory but tries to push it to the corner and they sort of know it's there but they don't act on it. That's fine, that's all conscious. And what's the scientific basis for repressed memory? Zip, nothing. Except if you believe in Freudian analysis. Now, the concept of repression has been studied for 80 years, if not longer. And there's not one iota of scientific proof that it exists, that it is possible. Then you get Elizabeth Loftus, and she was a psychologist, and she was very taken by this. And what she really did was take a whole lot of concepts and, re and changed our understanding of how memory works. Because according to the people with repressed uh, memories of abuse, what happens is somebody opens the door, unlocks it, and it comes out as a perfect memory, almost like a videotape. You remember everything seamlessly. And Loftus showed this is quite impossible. And this is hugely important that people who keep going back to memories as they go further in time, as they get older, 
every time the memory changes slightly, every time they put in a new spin. And this has got huge implications, of course, in forensics for court witnesses, what people say. And the courts are very slow to understand this. Um, well, there's a repressed phone call. <laughs> so Loftus has shown she's really changed the world of psychology and law by her studies, which are absolutely impeccable. But of course, the people promoting repressed memories weren't interested in this. What happens, remember I said only in America, so it gets picked up by the media, and the next thing you have all these people turning up on talk shows. And the most uh, notorious example was that marvellous, well, I think so, comedian Roseanne Barr, who was well into her 40s then, and turned up on Sally Jesse Raphael or Jerry Springer or one of those shows, I've been sexually abused. I'd repressed the memory and now it's all coming out. Roseanne, of course, as you know, has had more problems recently than repressed memories. And in fact, amidst all their recent stuff, she said, oh, that was all nonsense. So at least one person has come out on, on that. But the real problem was people were suddenly were instructed if they had discovered these memories to behave in a certain way. Cut off your family, be as antagonistic and rude to them as you can, and take it to the police. And now the problem started. Case after case in the public and legal hysteria were thrown into jail. And the problems were often with uh, child care centres. And you'd get someone who almost invariably had a history of disturbance, in some cases were out-and-out out schizophrenic paranoid, and they were saying, look, the people who run this place, they were bringing their friends, they were molesting children in mass, and they were also doing satanic rituals, which we'll come to later, and this. Now, so far, you can think this is just a sort of a bad joke. But people were being thrown into jail for decades, with, with sentences for decades. I'll give you an example, uh, Janet Reno, who Hillary Clinton selected to be the Attorney General, made her name by prosecuting the husband and wife who ran a child care centre. And the husband was put in jail, I think, for 40 years, and the wife for 30 and it was all nonsense. But by that time, of course, she'd moved on. So all hell was breaking loose and it was spreading. Of course, England was the one place and we started to get these cases in Australia. So it's inevitable that when this kind of thing happens, you'll get a kickback. And slowly but surely, people started saying, hang on a minute, we've got to bring some sense into this We've got to look at what the science is, not just the emotive uh, response to the idea. And the battle took place in a very, the, the, the real battle took place in a great forum, the New York Review of Books. And at that stage, the Boston Feminist Collective had published a book, some of you may have heard, I'd be surprised if it's not in the odd library or two still, The Courage to Heal. Ellen Bass and Laura Davis. And they churned out all the stuff. If you think it happened, it did happen. 
if there's anything wrong with you, it's due to abuse. When you think you're abused, uh, report your parents to the police. When a therapist, when your therapist is told this, they must not talk to your parents, they must be cut off, they're not allowed to give their side of the story. And into this sails a guy called Frederick Cruz. Now Fred Cruz was a brilliant literary analyst. He's a lit crit guy. And he sailed into this in thing called, with a couple of articles, number one, number two, The Return of the Repressed. And he cut them to pieces. Now, besides the fact that he happened to be right, and history has proven him right, it's worth getting these articles because they were published in a collected book called The Memory Wars. Because he then started st getting stuck into Freud and the whole uh, ship of analysis because of the way Fred Cruz writes. If you ever want to see a brilliant critical author who every word is immaculate, uh, read Fred Cruz. So then he, he tore them to pieces. Then the psychiatrist started coming into it. Uh, August Piper, Harold Mirsky, um, Paul McHugh, Paul McNa Richard McNally, a lot of other guys. And they really started for the first time looking at all of this thing. One of the most important things, and remember what I said that the, the recovered memory movement said, you know, these people can all play back these memories when they get them, like a, almost like a videotape. And they were saying, oh, I can remember when I was in my cot at six months old and these people came and they did these terrible things to me. No child, no fetus, not even Superman can has the neurological capacity to do that. In fact, from a neurological point of view, you may have flickering memories, uh, spaced out memories, but until four years old, no memory can be regarded as reliable and valid. And these were such obvious things, and yet they were being pushed aside. So a huge movement was started. Obviously, the important part, as always happens, to stop child sexual abuse and punish those who do it, was actually losing out. Because when you have people falsely accused, the whole legal system is thrown out of gear. And resources that were being thrown into putting, putting up cases against people who were innocent were diverted from where they should have been. Now, that was the first part of this triad. The second part is a marvelous story of lies and bullshit. It starts in the 50s with a book some of you may have heard and it was made into a movie with um, Paul Newman's wife. And the book was called The Three Faces of Eve. Now, Eve had, according to the author, Harvey Cleckley, three personalities. And that was it. Now, there were occasional reports in the last hundred years. What I remember, psychiatry, we, we, we were young folk. We really started around the beginning of the 19th century, but we certainly did a lot of stuff after that. But if you looked in the literature, virtually nothing about multiple personality. But socially and culturally, 
something did happen at the, towards the end of the 19th century. Robert Louis Stevens, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, huge impact, meaning there's this man who's the pillar of respectability, he goes to his laboratory, he drinks this potion he's made, and he becomes this monster for the night. Next day, he's back. At the same time, you had another phenomenon. The first notable serial killer, Jack the Ripper, was on the loose. And now you had proper media that really broadcast these things. So the idea that there was a devious, dark side to everybody's, shall we say, soul that could be unleashed was set in track. Okay, so you get the three phases of Eve, and this attracts a certain amount of attention. But then a, f a decade later, you get the book that really hit the spot, Sybil. And Sybil was the story of a woman who has allegedly had 16 different personalities. Where'd they come from? She'd been subjected to terrible abuse by her mother, who was allegedly a schizophrenic. Uh, and she brought in people into the kitchen and they'd done terrible things to her with all sorts of kitchen implements. And they'd left her a wreck. Now the woman for whom the name Sybil was given was Shirley Ardell Mason. And her psychiatrist was a woman called Cornelia Wilbur. And Cornelia Wilbur thought she was the new Freud and she was going to get the Nobel Prize. It caused a sensation. Of course, there was a movie made with Sally Field, I think, as the subject. And they were playing around, they were getting publicity, but um, Wilbur wanted more. So she got a journalist called Flora Rita Schreiber to write the story. And Schreiber sat there and listened to this and said, but this is all bullshit. I don't believe it. And they said, do write both of them, the patient and the psychiatrist, said, write what I tell you, what we say, and you'll make a fortune. So she did, and she made a fortune, they all did. But then the story gets a bit awry. Wilbur is constantly setting up, giving lectures and telling people, you know, this is what happens with uh, repressed memories and childhood abuse. Uh, it's the new form of hysteria, and we've got to get it registered uh, in the diagnostic manuals and all of this. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, what she was doing with her patient was finding that she wasn't so happy to give information anymore. And she wasn't saying quite so strongly, I had all these personalities. So she started pumping her full of amphetamines and barbiturates. In fact, she turned her into a complete addict who was totally dependent on Wilbur. In fact, she even had her as a kind of semi-servant. At one stage, she moved her into her house and gave her duties to do. So this wasn't good for anybody, but it was a worldwide sensation. And multiple personalities are suddenly the, what can you call it in, psychi in psychiatry, the soup du jour, the new fashion. Everybody was getting multiple personality. But they, how were they doing it? Well, pretty much 
going to therapists and say, do you think you've got a multiple personality? I think you have. And it would kick off from there. Now, remember I said the first book, Three Faces of Eve, merely came up with three personalities for uh, Miss Eve. Now, you've got Sybil with 16 personalities, but that was just kid stuff. That was the beginning. Until this day, you're getting people with thousands of personalities. And one has to admire them to some extent. If you've got 3,500 different personalities, to me, my question is, how the hell do you remember who you are? Which one is coming and which one is going? But they claim they do. Then you get, again, the same guys are looking at this. Mirsky, uh, McHugh, and all of this. Look at the literature. In the last century, we've had a hundred cases in the literature. And you never know, but let's say they did occur. So that means an average of one case a year. Now suddenly we were getting thousands and they were getting their special therapists. And these therapists were making a fortune by putting them in private hospitals, giving them intensive, highly expensive therapy. Well, something had to give. So first of all, they're showing the absolute uh, absence of clinical evidence in the psychiatric history for multiple personality. And then people were going for these treatments and finding, well, whatever they thought was wrong with them, they were actually getting worse. And then they were trying to go to court, and you still get occasionally, we had a case in Sydney not so recently, of people saying, oh, I didn't do it, my personality, my third personality, my tenth personality did it. And the courts didn't uh, like that. So the bubble had to <coughs> burst. And the worst offender was a guy called Bennett Braun. And they started suing him. Uh, they wiped him out financially. He was deregistered. And then multiple personalities started fading away. Although it still turns up and people still believe it. And this is something we'll come back to about how these things that, no matter how hard you work to bring back reality and truth, they, they're just rumbling away below the surface. So the last issue was really tagged on to the first one. Cases of sexual abuse then became satanic. And people would tell of these ghastly things involving blood and eating and the entire churches coming round to the house to do all of this. Well, that was just a variant on the same thing. And again, you've got people looking into each case. But it became so serious. There was such public outcry. And again, yeah, we link in with what the paper Sandra wrote on Satanism over here, although the Satanism wasn't hooked in with uh, child sexual abuse. So the government said we've got to do something. And they had the La Fontaine inquiry in Britain and in the US they had uh, Kenneth Lanning. Now, any of you watch these programs on, I don't know, Netflix and that where they have the FBI's behavioural science unit? And Lanning is the, one of the stars of the science unit. Um, and he did a huge investigation. He was unable to find a single case in the whole of America. And let's face it, I mean, what, 300 million people 
uh, not one case that he could legitimise, and so did La Fontaine. So that pretty much blew it out of the water. But there was a marvellous spin-off, and again, this is only in America, in this case, only in, south, in the south of America, where they have lots of trailer parks. Um, <laughs> this was a variation, and you must have heard of it. I haven't been satanically abused, I've been alien abducted. Uh, this happened to you? No, no. I've heard of it, it's uh, a big thing. There you go. And they always followed the same kind of pattern. Uh, you know, the aliens come down at night, they look like funny guys with antennae and one eye in the head. In fact, they look like a few friends of mine, but that's another story. And then they get taken away in the ship and always one thing, anybody sensitive here, close your ears, you get an anal probe. Um, why? I don't know. It obviously reflected something. Okay. But it shows you the socio-cultural uh, effects of these because a psychiatrist at Harvard, Harvard, the leading university in America, John Mack, he writes a book, I've seen 67 cases of alien abduction. And it's true. I believe it. We should be sympathetic to these people. So Harvard tries to kick him out and they drag him before a sort of a inquisition. In the end, they say, you know, oh, John, he's retiring soon and freedom of speech and, you know, he's pretty harmless. Let's leave him alone. Okay, so, so Mac just rumbles away till he, you know, he passes on. But a very good psychologist, and this is a guy called Richard McNally, who's absolutely my hero. McNally, you know, did work on false memory syndrome and also the Vietnam veterans who were claiming PTSD, post-traumatic stress. But the Vietnam veterans claiming it, the, the main group, were not people who'd just come out of a dreadful firefight with the Viet Cong and, you know, were saying, I'm freaked out by this. They were people one to two decades later who suddenly said, I've got PTSD symptoms. And in fact, the more time that passed, the more people were claiming it. So what McNally and his group did, and this is a very interesting exercise, uh, instead of just saying, yeah, come, I'll, in I'll interview you, I'll tick the boxes of the symptoms, he did something we're all going to like in this room. He hired historians. <laughs> and the historians went back through their military files. And they were finding that all these late claims, if they were in Vietnam, they didn't see combat. They sat in an office. Maybe the only combat they saw was in a... A, a Saigon joy house, but that's a different story. <laughs> and there were people who had never even been to Vietnam and stayed in the US. So this set the grounds for all sorts of conflict. But what did Richard do with the alien abduction? I don't know if he got all 67 cases of John Max, but he got a lot of them. And he did a proper interview. And what did he find? a marvellous thing for people interested in the history of sleep disorder. They all had something called sleep paralysis. Now, sleep paralysis is a phenomenon that has been documented for 3,000 years. You can see examples in the Bible, in the Assyrian Codex. 
the Vikings had any, had case stories. And the interest, I'll tell you what sleep paralysis is first of all. It occurs at the deepest stage of sleep, stage four, and the person has horrifying images, dreams of something happening. But their reaction is the critical part. They are paralysed. So they often say, yeah, I get woken up with these terrifying events and I want to scream, but my mouth won't open. I want to run, but my legs won't move. And they get a pressure on the chest and they feel like they're falling. Now that's stage one. Stage two sleep paralysis is the one where it's happening to you and you're looking down and you can see yourself. The word for that is autoscopy. And stage three of sleep paralysis is the real uh, exciting part. Time and space travel. Now is this starting to make a certain logic? You know the story of the magic carpet in the Iranians or in Persia? That is stage three sleep paralysis where that comes from. So who gets sleep paralysis? Well, I don't know how many people are in the room, but 40% of you would have had an episode at least once in your life. It's a normal phenomenon, but if you're under stress, if you've got psychiatric or physical problems, more often. And some of the wonderful drugs we give people really kick it off. <laughs> uh, so Richard goes to these people and says, listen, here's my findings. You've all got sleep paralysis. And here's the interesting thing. They refused to believe him. They did not want to surrender their belief of this dramatic event in their lives that, in a sense, gave them some meaning rather than something that was clinically absolutely spot on. And it's interesting. I have, if you read about the San Koi Bushman uh, witch doctors, magicians, healers, you know how they go into these trance states. And some of the literature, they clearly have episodes of sleep paralysis. But, and what do they do? We know from their trance states, that's what they paint on the rocks. And they've got their own spirit world, Cachen and the trickster and this kind of thing. Well, what we know of sleep paralysis, there's been some wonderful books about it, how each different culture has a different, they get the same physiology, but the cultural overlay gives them what things. So a, Norway, a Viking, for example, is going to have something about Viking ships and Viking gods. So you're living in the South America uh, of, of the American country, in a trailer park, what are you going to have a sleep paralysis? You're going to have alien spaceships. So there you go. So look, I can go on for a long time, but I think I've given you an outline. But the really important part, you can say that's the fun part of the talk, is to look at the, the whole issue of the meaning. Now, there's a couple of conclusions we can draw from this. The first conclusion, it's a variant of what a doctor, a writer said of the Nazi doctors at Nuremberg. Medicine contains within it the seeds of its own destruction. And it is all too easy for doctors, healers, carers, psychologists, social workers, whatever you want, to latch onto things and say this is the answer and the only exclusive answer. The spin-off from that is that it is a very, very bad thing when doctors see themselves as judges. In other words, I'm going to judge someone and that brings in the law. 
And if I am not putting it in this talk, but some of you will have heard about the store of Munchausen's by proxy. Munchausen's by proxy has no scientific basis whatsoever. Um, people have been harming and killing their children again for as long as human beings have been around. In some cultures, it's absolutely required territory. So this goes on, but to put a scientific label, a pseudo-scientific label was done by the head, a guy who became the head of British paediatrics, Sir Roy Meadow. And Meadow had no training in psychiatry at all. He certainly had no training in how to deal with adults with mental problems. And yet Meadow was sent by the courts, by the police, by everybody, to interview women whose children had died and nobody could explain why. What was the result? At least 50 uh, unfair convictions, if not more. How did it end? It wasn't the ordinary person in the street who was the problem. They got three women who were middle class, one of them was a lawyer, and they refused to accept any guilt and fought it all the way, paid a terrible penalty. So Meadow got, uh, finally his game was up and they deregistered him. But then every paediatrician said, we'll never give evidence or do forensic work again. So they said, okay, you're back on. But anyway, he was, he was ruined by then and he's never been heard of since. So that's one of the first points, is the tremendous power that can be misused in things, in caring, work, medicine, etc. The second thing is, we go back to the pursuit of the millennium and moral panic. You can see the issues of moral panic so easily in this, these scenarios here. But I think that we've got to always look just behind it. The idea in a society of uh, a utopian world and how we get to that one. Now this occurs, it's interesting, in what do you call it, upmarket first world countries. America, England, Australia, that sort of thing. You don't get the stuff where people are starving and struggling for their daily bread. And this is the part that sometimes people see as controversial. It becomes much more middle class rather than people who are down at the bottom. And the ultimate expression is this thing for the wellness movement. Because the wellness movement has got an interesting psychology. It is a denial of death. It substitutes for it the idea, yeah, you see, it's controversial. Um, it substitutes for it the idea that you need to be, you need to seek health by leading a good lifestyle and doing this and that, exercise, diet, uh, all of that sort of stuff. And yet this is in complete contradiction to some very <laughs> huge reality tests to quote Lord Keynes, in the long run we are all dead. And this whole issue of the wellness movement is to pretend death never occurs. And if you do get sick, then it's your fault. 2,000 years of the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Hippocratic uh, ethos that you don't blame somebody, you don't judge somebody who's ill, you're there to treat them out the window. So. That's a whole new thing, and uh, we'll see a lot more of that, and you might get that in the next lecture.
There's also several chapters about that in the new book. <laughs> so on that note, that happy note, I think I'll end and I'd love to take questions on anything. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob, for a really okay. reflective and uh, uh, speech lecture. I've got to ask Abra, oh. ask me a question, please, before you go back to Cairns. Before I go back to Cairns? Yep. So, okay, the, the concept of multiple personality. Yep. Don't we all have multiple personalities? Every day we get up and we're a different person. What is the depth? Yep, the definition I see what you say. Of a the, the clinical definition versus... People fluctuate in different ways in their daily interaction. Mood, behaviour and uh, attitude. And yes, you can be a different person. Look, if you've got somebody with a problem with your temper, suddenly you can become enraged. Mm -hmm. But multiple personality is what you might call categorical. It's not just, hey, I'm having a day when I'm going around and biting everybody in the ankle and tomorrow I'm dishing out flowers and, and, and patting dogs on the head. It is, I am a different person. I'm not Abra, a flying doctor today. I am little Susan, uh, three years old, living uh, 200 years ago. Can you see what I'm getting at? This is a totally different identity that has no connection with your essential ego. So by, by um, categorically defining that, yes. you need a name, a voice, oh, yes. uh, the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, and that's why I'm so impressed that they all, that no matter how many they've got, they keep coming up with it. As I say, it's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Yolanda, I want one from you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think anything else. All right, who else can I name? Okay, yes. Yes. So, um, it was really interesting. Um, so, I'm just, because we're talking about sexual traumas, so I have a question. Yes? So, they, psychologists often speak about the three responses, fight, uh, fright, flight, and then also freeze. Yeah. Um, so, when we're talking about sexual trauma, and we're specifically also talking about repression of memories and so forth, uh, some... Uh, Thing that I've also read before is dissociation that occurs during sexual trauma. Yes. I.e. experiencing an out-of-body experience as if you are looking down on what's happening on you and it's not actually happening to you yourself. Um, as we are now talking about what mental processes actually occurred and what is true and what is not true, what is your take on dissociation? You know, dissociation is a very important and common response to terrible trauma. Um, I did a report on a woman a couple of weeks ago who was a caseworker and a guy came into the room and we know from the reports that he threatened to kill her, he had a knife with him, he behaved in a, a really hostile way. Okay, they chase him out and this, she has no memory of the 30 minutes from the time she walked in till afterwards, but she knew what had happened in a sense. Once they told her, she just knew that she'd cut off. The problem with dissociation clinically is very difficult to pin it down because everybody can feel a bit spaced out or a bit distracted. But you're absolutely right, dissociation is important. Marion. Okay. Uh, I thought I was a question, I was kind of give a comment. 
anything. <laughs> just don't, just don't throw anything. Okay. Because I, I find it interesting how he said, um, how when you, um, with people making accusations of like being sexually assaulted, yes. stuff, about how they think back and like, like it's like they see everything with like, like as a movie, like everything. The ones with repressed memory, you're yes, quite right, yes. Um, so it's kind of interesting because it's, my thing is like, because each person is different. Yep. So with how, what you see as sexual assault is not exactly what other persons, but someone else. Oh, it's highly it. subjective and everybody yeah. is, is, in, is coming in on that. But remember that the issue of a repressed memory is somebody who's got absolute blank thing and then something, usually therapy, brings it out and the therapist reinforces this is what happened to you. No matter what objections the patient will bring up, they'll get it hammered and hammered and hammered till they believe it. Uh, everybody else, and remember that what I keep stressing, the problem with all this stuff is the diversion away from genuine victims. You all have a range of response and need all the assistance we can give them. Abra. Sorry. Um, I think two questions. The first one is, when repressed memories happen, mm -hmm. is there, and do we have a, a means of, like, by spectrum photometry or whatever, to delineate, you know how you get hardwiring, where perhaps memory gets hardwired elsewhere, and the brain has got, has that got something to do with it? And well, second, yeah, yeah. time travel, I don't understand what you mean by that. Oh, okay, well, the first one is, this is the point, that there's no physiological basis, as you call it, hardwiring, for repressed memory. Mm -hmm. Remember people can have fiddly memories, bits and pieces, but every time they think about it, they add their current thing and it slowly gets distorted. That's normal. Okay? But a, a sort of this idea of an encapsulated memory that get tucked away and then you just play it out, they, it cannot think. And it's not just Elizabeth Loftus, there's enormous amount of research and, and literature on that. So, for, for instance, when we mm -hmm. learn something, yes. for instance, how to drive a car, yeah. so we call that, is that hardwiring? What's, no. the, what's the difference between hardwiring and plastic memory? Look, I'm not too sure if you can be that categorical about it. You've got to remember in the Uncas and the hippocampus, mm -hmm. you have your immediate short-term memories mm -hmm. that circle over. Then they get sent up into other parts okay. of the brain. Then every night when you sleep, it's like this vacuum cleaner, it cleans out all the junk in your memory and some stuff stays, that's important. That's basically the, the secret of memory. Now the second part, um, people with stage three um, sleep paralysis, they really say, I thought I was, you know, 200 miles away and it was a period 100 years ago and, and I had a, I felt I was there and this was happening to me. So, oh, so you really mean time, you mean yes, age? Yes, yes. well it can be time, but it can also be place. And if the other thing about sleep paralysis, look, I don't know, if, is anybody here prepared to admit they've ever had it? Well, there you go, is when they wake up. They wake up in a state of terror, and the classic sign is they go around the house checking the windows, looking under the beds, and all of that. Did, would you, is that what your experience was? I know something was happening outside of the house, but I couldn't get up. Well, there you go. There you go. Yes, yes. I think there's a nurse here who's had it. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, thank you. <laughs> yes, um, I was particularly intrigued by the part when you talked about um, extraterrestrial species. Um, uh, alien abduction stuff, yeah? <laughs> yes, because uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about that, and uh, obviously the people will say, I mean, it's never existed. But then there's like the huge literature on the 1947 Roswell crash, and even oh, yeah. neighboring Zimbabwe, there has been uh, aliens, and then. I'm sorry, Chet's not here. I can make some nasty <laughs> comments about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, sometime in 1993, uh, there was uh, it wasn't a crash really, but it was more like a, a visit. So, flying saucer went to a mm -hmm. school in Zimbabwe, and um, this small man came out and they interacted with the children. Right. Uh, and then they then went back, and then they went. So for a very long time. They were trying to suppress the memories of these children. Uh, right. You mean the authorities were trying to suppress? Yeah. And or were they just saying, listen, you're wrong, you're a liar? Yeah, yeah. there's nothing like that. Okay. Um, so what happened is they put them in, in, in different rooms. Apparently one of my cousins went to the school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll try to make it personal, right? <laughs> <laughs> my cousin uh, went to school. So um, they were asked to draw what they saw mm -hmm. and they drew the same thing you know and and for me i think that that's telling of how sometimes you can't really suppress like because you know, it was young, young young children but then up until now every year in zim uh there is like a reminder of the infamous visits from our cousins from beyond right you know? <laughs> but you know they, they still remember even though they're young no matter how hard they try to suppress Okay, let me make just one point that there's the phenomenon of what's called mass hysteria, which often occurs in outbreaks in places like schools, dormitories, boarding houses, boarding schools, that sort of thing. So without knowing anything more, that's what I would want to look at critically to what extent one person got this idea and then it spread rapidly through all everybody else and after that it was fixed but listen i'm not here to talk about the variabilities of cultures in different societies i'm specifically talking about this issue there so i'm very interested so thank you for telling us that yeah yes May I ask a serious question? I'm wondering if you, you make the point, and I think you're quite right, that one of the problems with these, um, if you will, almost moments or movements you point out, is they actually subtract from the seriousness of um, victims, actual victims. And, and my serious question is, how does one prevent one's own work, a, a presentation like this one, in a sense, becoming complicit in that? Uh, subtracting the seriousness because in a way you gave us these three uh, pillars or moments each attached to two or three books and make very broad generalizations uh, related to these and how does one keep hold of the specificity of individual cases here um, and also talk about these matters and so we all have a bit of a chuckle because this has been wonderful but, but these are deeply deeply serious and painful matters now, that's a reasonable question. Remember, I'm giving a talk in a fairly short period of time. There's a vast amount of literature. I spent about 10 years following it through and doing that. And I mean, I can give anyone who wants to really see the, the basis for that. That's the first point. The second point is, 
uh, you might say, pillar of this whole thing as bad child sexual abuse that is unpunished is just as bad as child sexual abuse that is unfairly punished or rather somebody who's unfairly punished for child sexual abuse they didn't didn't do I mean look at the the way we react to anybody who goes to jail for that uh, they really are um, get the worst view in society and these are innocent people so I think you've got to see the two on a scale uh, the one goes through to the other and yes uh, all of that each case has to be assessed on its merits but what I'm talking about is a phenomenon that occurred with a whole lot of social and and cultural uh, you might say push factors and has sort of died out now just turning up occasionally for some cases. Hmm. Rob, there's a question there too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, sorry. Not too. Not too. Um, I just wanted to mention the, the, hmm? the case of the vampires in Uganda oh, since, yes. since we, we were talking about it briefly earlier. So I think it raises a really interesting point about not wanting to totally dismiss what people have to say, no matter how fantastic it sounds. Um, it, there's a, a Louise White did a fantastic book that uses this as a political metaphor that says, you know, it's all about the times, all of those kinds of things, which would fit beautifully with your discussion. And then there was a restudy of doctors' notes in the area of what they were actually doing in, with children in the hospitals. And one of the doctors involved talks about keeping children's hearts and livers and blood in his refrigerator at home until they could be sent off to Britain for his studies. Mm -hmm. And so, and there, there's more details in there too. But Jennifer, what Jennifer Tappan did was actually document that there was a physical basis for all of these rumors about blood drawing, about organ extraction from small children, about all of these different kinds of things. They were drawing the blood from their necks um, that had been assumed to be simply metaphors at the time. How do you, when you're restudying this kind of thing, allow for that as a possibility while still maintaining the kind of skepticism and, and investigative kind of thing you're talking about? Well, fortunately, yeah, you know, vampirism, you have to admit, is pretty rare. Uh, although that was, yes, yes. <laughs> I'll give you a better example. The discovery of Kuru in the Foray tribe, the last Stone Age tribe in New Guinea. And these people were suddenly, the women and the kids were all like this and just dementing and dying horribly. So all these people are coming in, including Carlton Gadjusek. And what do the anthropologists say? They are like this because they've had the a curse put on them by another tribe. And this sort of deviates the whole thing. And then Gadjusek comes and he listens carefully to them. And he sits there and him and his pals, every time somebody dies, they're sitting outside the hut saying, how much do you want for us to take the organs from the body so we can study them? And you, what do you think the response was? It was it then spread the anxiety even further. Well, fortunately, Gadjusek, of course, hit it right and he found the, the, the retrovirus, so that was good, but it could have had a worse ending. Yes? Brian, uh, thank you. Uh, I have many questions, but come uh, and single out one. Stick to one. <laughs> yes. Uh, the issue of multiple personality yeah. intriguing. Uh, so I was earlier asked where you did mention that if I wake up in the morning today and I'm grumpy now, I'm angry and then later on I'm not as angry that doesn't count but I now want to think 
what could be a triggering element of these multiple personalities? Can we culturally bring about a concept of demonic possession, especially in light of uh, the repressed memories as well and the actions that then happen where someone goes and does something very heinous on one end and then two days later asked about that same thing has got no recollection of it. And while it's in some cases one we might rightly argue to say that we're looking for a defense against the crime that we did, but in some other cases as you mentioned, someone totally and genuinely has got no recollection directly of is a well, look, let me put it to you this way. You might say it's almost the commonest problem as a for forensic psychiatrist that people, when they commit awful crimes, how often they say, I just cannot remember what I did. And, you know, it's, you've really got to look at all the evidence then. You can't take it just on that because uh, maybe they were so whacked out on booze and drugs that this is true, but there could be other explanations. So each case has to be dealt with on its merits. Michelle, there's a question from Michelle. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this question might be a little bit too personal, but I'm just going to... Um, what is your perspective on demonic spirits? On demonic? On demonic spirits, like a spiritual realm. I don't know if you've studied a, the spiritual realm. Oh, yeah. What's my a lot of like the personality disorders are mental disorders, etc. But mm -hmm. a lot of people link it to a spiritual demonic spirit that might be within a person that creates the different. Oh no, I see what you mean. Look, or for example, yeah. somebody who struggles with um, alcohol abuse. A lot of people say no, it's because there's a demonic spirit upon that person. Yeah. So what is your perspective on that? At least everyone has their own perspective on it. Now my perspective is cynical. I'm an agnostic. <laughs> there you go. But I think it's one of the interesting things in psychology and psychiatry, the realisation how we have neglected the spiritual side in patients. And I'm actually part of a committee that we're trying to sort of promote that side and study of spiritual effects and all of that. So that doesn't specifically say, you know, everybody's got a demon in them but it does open the wider field and I think it is terribly important. So that's the best answer I can give you. Yes. Thank you so much for your talk, it was really fascinating. Thank you. And do you think that possibly people who are presenting with multiple disability disorder are actually just sort of suffering from another type of psychiatric illness like schizophrenia or they're just in psychosis and that's sort of more the reason? Put it this way, if you're going to have a psychiatric illness that will make you think you've got different personalities, you certainly will have schizophrenia or manic depression. But if you look at people who present, remember I'm an agnostic again, whether it exists at all, but if you look at the people who present, most of them are not psychotic. They might be depressed, they might have all sorts of problems, but they're not crazy. Okay. Okay. Um, this might be maybe the, the humanities versus science question that will fare, but um, I'm wondering, when we speak about things like uh, psychiatric illnesses or beliefs around mm. psychiatric illness or Satanism, I mean, what we are trying to do is explain why people behave the way they behave, right? Yes. And surely, if, if 
a person holds a, a holds a belief here in EPM that influences the way in which they behave, then that belief is is in a way a certain type of truth, right? We shape the truth that 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 makes us believe in a certain way. So, so in terms of categorizing things as either schizophrenia or another type of uh, personality disorder that makes you believe that you have multiple personalities, mm-hmm. or um, whether or not you believe that you have been abducted by, by aliens or you've actually just had sleep paralysis, isn't, isn't that maybe missing the point? The point is that we should try and figure out why people behave in certain ways. Well, you're absolutely right, but the question is, how did they get there and why, what are we to do when it is therapists? for example, in child repressed memories, who are actually creating this. That is not uh, the way lives should be running. But if a person has a belief, that fine, let's leave it and let's respect it. But remember, they are not just sitting there with these beliefs, they are plugging into the system and saying we want retribution, we want compensation, we want help and treatment. Now what are you going to do? You should help them, but if they say, you know, something that is so against reality. I mean, what do you do if a schizophrenic says there's, uh, you know, there's a conspiracy, I can hear voices coming out of the walls, uh, everybody in this room can see through my, see through me and watch my heart beating. Do you say I respect that? Well, I think you would not deny their experience because their experience is very obviously shaping their behavior. You wouldn't deny it, you're right. And I, feel, I mean, I feel the way in which, in which uh, you address these types of things mm-hmm. is a certain type of denialism that disempowers the, the person who is, in, who is suffering. Look, they're welcome to do what they want, but once they plug into the system, they're saying, help me, and you've got to help them as best you can. And why are they there for help then? Schizophrenia doesn't exist, it doesn't help them though, does it? But schizophrenia does exist, that's the last thing I'm going to say. Well, I really do believe that, and I'm not going to, nobody's going to come and see me, but if I have to write a report on somebody who's claiming it, I will look on the whole background where they got it, and whether they're then going to say this gets them off the hook legally. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You do very well. We should have a debate on psychiatry versus anti-psychiatry. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, at this point in time, you, you're welcome to address more questions mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, and, uh, but f- from my side, uh, just thank you very much for a very interesting talk. You've got some last word that you want to say? What? Look, you can forget about everything I've said today, but do one thing. Read Norman Kahn's book, The Pursuit of the Millennium. That will change the whole way you look at everything. Thanks, Albert. Okay, you're welcome to our <laughs> <laughs>